Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, and the message entitled, Walk in Wisdom, this is part two. You know, in 1998, the number of um, alcohol-related deaths that take place, uh, that took place um, up to every year in the U.S., was between the ages of 16 and 24. It was a staggering number. It is the number one cause of death in youth. The number back then that died yearly was equivalent to crashing two 747s fully loaded every week for an entire year. Paul exhorted the believer to not be under the influence or control of anything but the Holy Spirit, as we're going to see in our text in verse 18. This is the mark of wisdom to abstain from the old life and be absorbed with the new life. We have stated that Paul gave seven specific marks that are to be characterized by the believer and to characterize a believer's walk in wisdom from verse 15 to 21. We looked at the first three ways that he gave us uh, the believer walks in wisdom in this world in verses 15 through 17. In 15, the believer is wise by walking responsible to the word of God circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, exactly, as close as you can to the word. Secondly, the believer is wise by walking accountable to share the word of God, redeeming the time because the days are evil. The more evil it becomes, the harder it is to share, not easier. And thirdly, the believer is wise by walking, enabled to know, understanding the will of God in verse 17. As we said, the first three seem to be for the benefit of the unbeliever by the living example of the believer as light for the purpose of their salvation, verse 15 through 17. The last four seem to be for the benefit of the believer's spiritual empowerment and maturity from 18 to 21. It doesn't mean that God won't or can't use that, but there seems to be that definite difference. Now, the key verse to this section is verse 18. It is both the power that gives a new life and the power to maintain and mature the new life. It is the transitional verse from the benefit towards the unbeliever and the benefit for the believer. Being filled with the Spirit is the fourth mark that is to characterize the believer's walk in wisdom. Three others will follow, especially dealing and going towards the life of the family, which is essential. So that will be verse 19 through 21. So let me read our text for us in verse 18. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Let's look at the fourth way a believer walks in wisdom in this world. It is simply by being filled with the Holy Spirit and it's characterized by three things again. 
First, being filled with the Spirit is in contrast to being drunk with wine. The first portion is in contrast. Second, being filled with the Spirit is compared to being affected with wine. And thirdly, being filled with the Spirit is a command opposed to wine. Three simple things that mark wisdom for the believer. Let's begin here with being filled with the Spirit is in contrast to being drunk with wine. Notice um, the negative implies danger by contrast. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation. The Apostle Paul has been contrasting the lifestyle of the children of darkness and the children of light in chapter 5, verse 1 to 17. Let me kind of just run down. In 1 through 17, he has been contrasting this life. And in verse 1 through 3, the children of darkness walk in, in lust, using people to gratify themselves sexually in any and every form, without any restraint, while the children of love and light love others, pleasing God, not themselves. Verse 1 through 3. In verse 4, the children of darkness walk in defiled speech, which is obscene. It has double meaning and filled with dirty jokes, while the children of love and light give thanks. In verses 8 down to 14, the children of darkness walk in the unfruitful works of darkness, while the children of light expose them as evil in order that they may be saved. In 15 through 17, the children of darkness walk by every standard of man, wasting time and being foolish, while those of light are to walk in wisdom, following God's word, taking advantage of every opportunity, understanding God's will. There's a big contrast there. Your life is a contrast. My life, what you were before, what you are now. Notice the command to not be drunk with wine is again in contrast to what the Gentile world lived out as a norm. If you've been walking with God for many, many years, it is shocking the way the world lives today. And it's kind of nice that you're shocked at it. That means you've come a long ways. <laughs> but the, the world just keeps moving forward, but downward. Never goes upward. Notice the command to not be drunk with wine. Here, the word drunk means to be saturated or soaked with wine. All the sins mentioned and more are compounded and taken to a greater extreme through drunkenness, which is evident of not being wise but foolish in the evil days. Our own depravity is bad enough, but you add alcohol to it. I presume that probably 99.9 .9 of us have been there before Christ. It's not good, it's not pretty, it's not nice, it's not constructive. The instruction is an imperative command 
of prohibition. Notice, again, the word drunk means intoxicated with alcoholic drink. And the word is used in Homer for stretching out a bull's hide, which in order to make it more elastic is soaked, and the word for drunk is used, with fat. What a good picture of drunkenness, um, a person being soaked with wine under the influence and affected. The imperative command could be um, translated literally, stop being drunk with wine. Implying some were getting drunk with wine, a prohibition, forbidding a practice already going on after their old life of the god of Bacchus, Dionysius. Bacchus, the god of wine and revelry. Dionysius also. The present tense middle voice here indicates the responsibility of the individual to stop the continuing practice of the old life. If we are born again, then... You, you know how many times I, I try to stop smoking? And I always decide to do it after I bought a new pack of Winston's. Winston tastes good like a cigarette should, they used to say. And I, and I throw it out, but then come Friday night. And Friday night, I'm going to party. So I'm going to drink, I'm going to drink, I'm going to smoke. But when I became born again, they both went at the same time. At the same time. Notice the Apostle Paul knew the whole of Scripture that gave testimony to lack of wisdom when it came to being drunk with wine. Let me just give you a little bit of evidence from Scripture. Noah, in the Old Testament, there are many incidents. Noah um, laid naked, and his son Ham gazed at him in Genesis 9, 31, 22. After God has judged the whole world, killed everybody under the judgment, what's the first thing Noah does? He, he plants a vineyard, gets drunk, he lays naked. Wow. When the son mocks him with evil heart and God brings a curse, right? You think Noah would have learned? No way. It's in nature. Lot's daughters got him drunk and lay with him. Genesis nineteen thirty two to 35. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, drank wine before they offered uh, an offering to the Lord, offering strange fire, and God consumed them in Leviticus ten nine. <clears throat> David got Uriah drunk, <clears throat> trying to get him to have go to bed with his wife so he can cover up his pregnancy in 2 Samuel 12. Absalom murdered Abnon while he was intoxicated with wine after he had raped Tamar or for raping Tamar in 2 Samuel 13. His sister. The Proverbs equally instruct us. Proverbs 20 verse 1 <clears throat> it says wine is said to be a mocker and a strong Strong drink, a brawler, being personified there as one who is against the person ridiculing his actions in person. It's an enemy of the person. It destroys him. Intoxicating strong drink arouses brawling, producing false sense of courage and, and ability. Alcohol is a depressant, not a stimulus. The one who partakes of it is said to be led astray by its influence and declared to be unwise. The related text here 
is Proverbs 23, 29 through 35, and, but probably verse 31 is what he has in mind, but the whole section speaks about drinking and the effects of it. I, I presume that you um, have experienced alcohol yourself if um, you weren't raised in the church, and I'm sure that you had family members and you know the trouble that it brings, the arguments, the accusations, the ugliness, the speech, whatever. It's all part of it. The New Testament also agrees it is um, a characteristic of the old life without Christ, 1 Corinthians 5.10 says. God struck some with death because they were getting drunk at the communion table in 1 Corinthians 11.21 and 30. It is identified as one of the works of the flesh if practiced. It hinders one from inheriting the kingdom of God, Galatians 5.21. It is not to be the practice for an overseer at all, a bishop in the church, 1 Timothy 3.3. The Apostle Paul's contrast is illuminating. Wine is a depressant. The Holy Spirit is a stimulant. Wine is gives you false concept of yourself, the Holy Spirit, reality of self. Wine breaks down morals. The Spirit upholds morals. Wine gives you loss of control. The Spirit, complete control. Wine makes your mind foggy and distorted. The Spirit makes it clear and proper vision. Wine makes you sensual. The spirit makes you spiritual. Wine, things get worse. The spirit, things get better. The Apostle Paul, notice, indicated the consequences of wine. They are costly. The person being drunk with wine is said to be with dissipation. The word um, in its root means to save. But putting an A in front of any Greek word negates the word. It cancels it out. The meaning is that being drunk with wine has no saving quality. But unsaving, uncontrollable, wasteful, and destructive quality. And it's often used to express a life of abandonment and debauchery in Scripture. The word is found two other times in the New Testament, Titus 1, 6 and 1 Peter 4, 4. Alcohol attacks the higher senses of the brain and destroys everything it comes in contact with. I don't know if you know that. If you don't believe me, leave a piece of meat in some alcohol overnight and come back and look at it in the morning and see what it's done. Each person is born with about 17 billion brain cells. And though we don't need or use all of them, once they're destroyed, you cannot reproduce them. They are the only cells that cannot be reproduced in the body. 
Yet every time a person drinks heavily, she or he, he destroys thousands of cells. I burned thousands of cells in my mind, in my brain. Now, women are the biggest luscious today. And it hurts them more because they're lighter in weight and the composition of their body. God help our society when these young girls and young mommies and party hardy teens and into the 20s when they get to be mommies and they get to be 30 and 40. It'll all come back to them. This is our society today. The same word is used for the prodigal son, but in a different form. To express right as living, indicating that he wasted his life, his possessions. But remember, there in Luke fifteen thirteen, the prodigal was not born again. Okay, maybe you've never heard that. Pastors always say, well, you know, he's a prodigal. You know, he walked with God, then he walked away. That's not a prodigal. The prodigal son was never born again. The father told the son, son, because he was upset at the party. Your brother was dead. Now he's alive. He was lost. Now he's found. So I've always heard just the opposite. It's absolutely wrong. He was not born again. Because, they, well, the prodigal, see, he came back. He was never born again. He got born again when he came back. Simple. He wasted his inheritance. He wasted his sexual purity. He lost all his friends when he lost all his money. Sound familiar? He ended up fighting with the pigs for some food. Now, this is not to say that only those who drink alcohol are involved in such lifestyle. This just happens to be the topic, and it comes along with it. Drunkenness is marked by a lack of wisdom and foolishness, but being filled with the Holy Spirit is a mark of wisdom. Listen carefully. One person is injured from an alcohol-related crash Every minute. An average of 10,000 people die from, drunken, from drunk driving related crashes every year. That's one person every 50 minutes. One in three people will be involved in an alcohol related crash during their life. Drunk driving costs every American adult almost $500 a year. Taxes, insurances. One in five teens... Binge drink. One in three die in alcohol-related crashes. Underage drinking results in 6,000 deaths each year. That's more than the deaths caused by all illegal drugs combined. And yet we're so stupid that we want to legitimize drugs. Marijuana dispensaries and all. Just keep your eyes on Colorado. It's going to go bad. It already has, but it's going to fall apart. Because crime and everything else breaks down. 
One in three teen traffics, fatalities, is alcohol-related. The average drunk driver has driven under the influence 80 times before he or she has their first arrest. 50 to 75% of convicted drunk drivers continue to drive on a, unsuspect, unsuspend, uh, a suspended license. 44% of North Dakota and South Dakota's total traffic death in 2010 were uh, drunk driving related. These two states had the most DUI related traffic deaths that year, followed by Texas, 42%. About nine years ago, a drunk driver hit me going home, right across Altadena, ran the red light. I had my daughter in the car. She was pregnant with my granddaughter, Emmy. Luckily, he hit my front wheel. If he would have just a little bit back, he would have killed me instantly. That was his third or fourth one. Amazing. Do you realize how many young men and girls have lost their virginity being under the influence of alcohol and experienced sex for the first time? I grew up in the 60s, maybe behind the back seat of a car, party couch, or their own bed. Now, you don't need alcohol for that, but it certainly doesn't help it. And everybody certainly knows that if you get somebody drunk, you can do a lot more things, right? It brings your inhibitions down. You know, they will never forget the sorrowful regret of knowing rather than celebrating that sweet surrender to their husband or wife. And by the way, that goes for male and female. I'm not saying just female. How many young girls have found themselves pregnant at a very young age and the young man unable or unwilling to marry them or provide for them? Having nothing to do with her. See, because young ladies, if you are a virgin and young men, but young girls, you go first. When that guy says he can't live without you, get away from him. What he's saying is, I can't live without you because I'm thinking of me. And when he says he loves you, he's going crazy over you. And that same lust, once he conquers you, he'll hate you a hundred times worse. Happens every time. You want to ruin a relationship, a good, godly relationship? Jump in bed. You'll destroy it. It's just that simple. Others are infected with STDs, causing them great heartache and suffering and sometimes sterility. And there's, there's so many STDs out there that they can't even keep up with them. But AIDS has taken the forefront, so they don't even bother with the others that much. Hmm. Habakkuk 2.15 says, Woe to him who gives drunk or gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to your bottle, even to make him drunk, that you may look on his nakedness. See, nothing new. There's way back there, Habakkuk. 
Thank God there is the grace of God to forgive us and cleanse us. But if you're sexually pure right now and then go out and become sexually defiled after having heard God's word, then you are sinning against the light that you possess. When you're in the world, you're blind and deaf and dead. But those who are in Christ and fail in that manner, I'm not saying you can't be forgiven. I'm just saying you're sinning against that light. It's greater judgment and sometimes greater consequences. Paul told the Corinthians this in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Uh, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. All of them there are first, except for one, it's all sexual. Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. That conduct is past tense. Can't be going on now. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever man sows, that will also reap. For he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. He who sows to the spirit of the spirit will reap everlasting life. Galatians 6, 7, and 8. He's talking to Christians. When he says, if you're practicing it, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Not non-believers. The financial cost to everyone is incredible. The amount of money that is lost in the workforce, conservatively, is about, it was about $10 million, um, $10 billion, sorry, $10 billion yearly, employee-employers, back in 1998. We're 18 years down the road, much, much more now. The cost for arrests, trials, jailing, after drinking, $100 million a year in ninety-eight. Much more now. The cost of family life, bringing about broken homes and shattered lives and bad examples. Can't be undone. You see, the believer is not to fall into these things. He's not to make provisions for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof in Romans thirteen, eleven through fourteen. Remember we still have a sin nature. If you play with fire, you will get burned. Trust me. No one's beyond it. Today, too many within the church are failing both in drinking and sex. Presuming upon the grace of God. Paul told the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8, he said, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. He's talking to Christians. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel, in sanctification and honor, not in passions of lust, like the Gentiles do who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, talking to Christians, as we also forewarned you and testify, for God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God who has also given us the Holy Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit is wisdom in contrast to being 
drunk with wine. Secondly, notice Paul says that being filled with the Spirit is compared to being affected with wine. The positive implies an object lesson by comparison. But be filled with the Spirit. The Apostle Paul noticed here by the statement, be filled, has to be interpreted in the context. The word fill means to fill to the top, to the brim, absolutely, abundantly, and liberally. The idea is that nothing is lacking, that it is complete in the completeness in every way. The word is used in a non-literal way to fulfill the divine command or claim, Romans 13, 8, Galatians 5, 4. To fill a specific measure such as a number of martyrs in Revelation 8, 11. To fulfill prophetic sayings most common in Matthew, this was done in fulfillment of. And to complete or finish such as the ministry given to Archippus in Colossians 4.17. Now, the word is also used in a literal way where that which fills takes possession or control as in our text here. John 18.6 says, Sorrow fill the hearts of the disciples, literally. The disciples were filled with joy. Acts 13.52, literally. The disciples, or Paul said, he was filled with comfort, 2 Corinthians 7.4. The believers to be filled with the Spirit, literally. Ephesians 5.18 here. It is the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The Greek grammar is unique here and doesn't follow the genitive case, but the instrumental case the Greek scholars tell us. In particular, Weiss, the scholar. He says the following, The Holy Spirit is a divine instrument who exerts this control and could be translated, be controlled by the Spirit. The believer is to allow himself to be controlled by the Holy Spirit to be supplied literally so as to walk in the Spirit even as a drunk is controlled by the alcohol. The tense is the present middle. That is to be ongoing by the believer all the time. The Apostle Paul noticed compares and the comparison here has no literal meaning when it comes to Losing control, though. Though it's literal in one way, on the other side, it's not literal in another way. So in other words, when you're filled with the Spirit, <clears throat> you don't lose control like you do with alcohol. Just the opposite. You're under control. On the day of Pentecost, as you know, in Acts 2.13, um, the disciples were accused of being drunk with new wine. There was only nine in the morning. Um, they were... Filled with the spirit, the baptism, but they were in full control. The doctrine of being drunk in the spirit with overwhelming laughter in the faith movement and the emergent church movement is nothing but flesh. It's not biblical. It's 
nowhere found in Scripture. And they just weigh to your flesh, your emotions. The spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets, full control, 1 Corinthians 14, 32. The Holy Spirit is not going to have you do something against your will. The Holy Spirit is not going to have you wiggle on the floor. The Holy Spirit is not going to have you what they call slain in the spirit. He is a gentleman. The spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. Notice the Apostle Paul's comparison between wine and the Holy Spirit is in view of influence. As a man is under the influence of alcohol and yields to its desires, so a believer is to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit, yielding to the desires of God. As an alcoholic cannot quench his thirst, so the believer is to thirst after the Holy Spirit. Psalm 42.1 As the heart pants after the water brook, so pants my soul after you, O God. Matthew 5.8 Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness shall be filled. As an alcoholic lives from day to day dependent on, on the alcohol to live by and live in, so a believer lives from day to day dependent on the Holy Spirit to live each day. Zechariah 4.6 says, Not by might, not by power, but by my Holy Spirit, says the Lord. Many today would have us believe that drinking is a disease. But if it is, it is the only disease that is contracted by the act of the will. It is the only disease that requires a license to propagate it. It is the only disease that is bottled and sold. It is the only disease that requires outlets to spread it. It is the only disease that produces a revenue for the government. It is the only disease that provokes crime. It is the only disease that is habit-forming. It is the only disease that is spread by advertising. It is the only disease without a germ or a virus cause and for which there is no human corrective medicine. It's self-induced. It's self-inflicted. The result of that is now you have cirrhosis. Now you have other things, but alcohol is not the disease. So you have the shrinks and the sociologists and all these guys trying to say, yeah, well, let you know, if your dad was an alcoholic, then you're going to be one too. Shut up. a lie. Now, you're going to follow that example if you don't get saved and you'll probably end up too. But it's not because it's a disease. What'd you do? Walk by a bar and alcohol jump out and go down your throat and now you're infected or what? The parable of Jesus as he taught parables did one of two things. They compare or they contrast, and then they had a punchline to illustrate the truth. This is what Paul is doing in our text here by the comparison and contrast, making it very evident, the punchline. Do you remember going to some party or a friend's house, and um, 
It was a given. You were expected to drink. And then you became a Christian and, you know, you want to be cordial, invite the boy, you're going to go. And if things get funky, you're going to bow out. But the minute you got there, they, when you say, oh, no, 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 it's okay. Oh, you don't, you don't want a beer? No, no, no. I just, come on. No, no. You've kind of said, no, I, I, I don't drink. You, you what? You don't drink. You get offended. They're more bothered that you don't drink. So each of us is to understand that we are expected to be filled continuously with the Holy Spirit. Do you remember observing people drinking and you weren't? And you could see the slow but surely degradation of the slurring, the walking, becoming louder and, you know, doing dumber things and thinking it's funny and and, and so a lot of people drink just to excuse their stupid conduct. And next day, oh, did I do that? And the destruction that happens. So each of us should be more under the control and influence of the Spirit in order to do the things we cannot do in ourselves, nor should we dare to do without Him. The person who is constantly drinking develops a craving and desire for alcohol and is, it grows and it usually begins in youth. I began to drink at 14 years old. Early. I got saved at 23, thank God. And it, it just, it grows. It doesn't diminish. So each of us are to develop an unsatisfied craving for the filling of the Holy Spirit. Alcohol gives people a buzz. The Spirit gives the believer a blessing. Alcohol is used to seduce sexually. The Spirit is used to save sexual purity. Alcohol is used to feel less inhibited. The Spirit helps us to be less foolish. Paul told the Thessalonians, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that that day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night, nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep in the night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. 1 Thessalonians 5, 4 through 8. Being filled with the Spirit is wisdom compared to being affected by wine. Notice third and last. Being filled with the Spirit is a command opposed to wine. The imperative implies the divine standard, but be filled with the Spirit of God. Notice the Apostle Paul declared this imperative command. It is not an option, it is not a suggestion, but a necessary command to all 
the believer can win in spiritual warfare if he does so. Walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Galatians 5.16 The believer is born into spiritual warfare the minute they ask Christ to forgive them. Galatians 5.17 says, For the flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. So you cannot do that what you wish. There's a warfare. You're born into it. It's a winnable warfare. But you've got to keep the throttles full-blown on the spirit. Being filled. The believer is guided, taught, and empowered by the Spirit. We are the children of God. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. In fact, James 4, 5 says, Or do you think that the Scriptures say in vain, The Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? As a man or a woman would be jealous... When another man or woman would hit on their wife or husband. So the Holy Spirit. Anything that wants to take me from God. The Holy Spirit is jealous. Provoked. Any man or woman who is not jealous over somebody hitting on them. They don't love their husband or wife. It's natural. Notice the Apostle Paul indicated the present tense here. In this imperative command. This will be going on continuously. Not just when we are serving, teaching, or preaching. All the time. It could be translated, keep on being filled for empowerment to live and to serve. Listen to Jesus. He that believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water in John seven thirty eight. Now, if you remember, the, the commentary comes in verse 39. He says, and this he spoke of the Holy Spirit, which was not yet given to the churches of yet, because Jesus was not yet glorified. It's talking about the baptism, when Jesus said, tarry in Jerusalem to do to your, and do with power from on high, in Acts 1.8. This is what will quench our thirst and the void within us. That is so often attempted to be satisfied with material possessions, pleasure, fame, sex, whatever you want to fill it in. Once you think you've got it and you experience it, you're going to say, okay, what's next? You're going to move to something else. Trust me. James 4, or John 4, 14 says, Whoever drinks of the water, and this is Jesus speaking, that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. So if you drink of the water of the world, it'll quench your thirst for a while. But you have to have something else. You have to move to something else. You start with little drugs, then it's big drugs. You start with little alcohol, then it's a lot of alcohol. You start with one sexually, you go with another one. It's just it's never going to be satisfied. Trust me. Hell and destruction are never full. Neither the eyes of man ever satisfy, the proverb says. That's what I always gave my daughter and my wife when they're going shopping. Notice the Apostle Paul indicated the command for every believer. This is not just for pastors. This is not just for men. For everybody. The verb is in the plural 
We are sealed with the Holy Spirit, he's told us already in Ephesians 1.13, the engagement ring, verse 14. And we are not to grieve the Holy Spirit, bringing pain to it in Ephesians 4.30, disobedience. We're to be controlled by the Holy Spirit, every believer, as often as we need it, continuously. Verse 18 here. Notice the Apostle Paul indicated the command in the positive or the passive voice. This teaches us that the filling is not a work of man, but of God. A lot of people say, okay, I'm just going to believe, I'm just going to believe. You know, it's not mind over matter. It's not, you know, TM. It's, it's God does this. John the Baptist made this very clear. Listen to Matthew 3.11. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, John the Baptist speaking. But he, Jesus Christ, who is coming after me, is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to loosen or carry. He shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. I can baptize you in water. You can baptize somebody in water. But Jesus baptizes in the Holy Spirit, not man. We may lay hands on you by faith, anoint you with oil, but it's, whole, it's God, Jesus Christ who baptizes in the Holy Spirit, not a man. The person cannot work himself up to this condition through self-efforts, tearing, praying, or agonizing, declares the Greek scholar Weiss. More faith and asking is declared by Jesus to be the way to be filled. Mere faith. Just mere faith. Listen to the scripture in Luke eleven thirteen. By the way, he's talking to his disciples in this parable. He says, if you then being evil, ooh, who? The disciples. If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Luke eleven thirteen. Now, is He talking about being born again? Of course not. The minute you're born again, you receive the Holy Spirit. Everybody does, or you can't be born again. He's talking about the baptism. He's talking to the disciples, those who ask the empowerment. Okay? As the ocean is constantly being filled with, by every river that flows into it, and yet it's never, ever overflowing, so each of us as believers need to be filled on an ongoing basis with the Holy Spirit. Not that the Holy Spirit is insufficient or loses its power. Not that I have a leak, <laughs> is that he constantly wants me to depend upon him to do for me what I cannot do for myself. The doctrine of the Holy Spirit, as a person is clearly taught in and by the scriptures, goes from Genesis to Revelation. The Holy Spirit is with man, describing the Holy Spirit's presence with man before salvation as well as after salvation, John fourteen seventeen, The Holy Spirit will be with you, Jesus said. 
Before salvation, the Holy Spirit is present to bring man to salvation. After salvation, the Holy Spirit is one with the man or the woman residing in him. That's the second preposition. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. John 16, 6, uh, 8 through 11. And sin refers to the missing of the mark. Imperfection. Everybody falls short. The Holy Spirit shows us. That's the conviction. Righteousness refers to the bankruptcy of every person to merit salvation. And judgment refers to the accountability of each individual's life before God that either has to be judged by repentance or after they die before the white throne judgment. One of the two. You see, the Holy Spirit is in man. He's with us and now he's in us. Describing the Holy Spirit after accepting Jesus Christ. When you ask to be born again, you don't have to ask for the Holy Spirit. It comes in you automatically. But you can pray that the, the Lord baptize you at the same time. <laughs> okay? The believer's body becomes a temple, as we said, in 1 Corinthians six nineteen, The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He is God. And he is the representative of Jesus here on earth. Um, he does not glorify himself. He doesn't speak of himself. He doesn't bring attention to himself. He only brings to our mind the things that Jesus has uh, said in the word of God. So the individual is not his or her own. You see, the doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is synonymous with the command to be filled continuously here. There's about seven or eight synonymous names that are affiliated if you've been through the New Believers course. Uh, the promise from the Father on high, the AP experience, the uh, promise of the Father, and many others, okay, that are associated with the baptism in Acts 1.8. Of course, certainly is you should be baptized, and that's the phrase that Jesus used. You should be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So I don't know why people object to that phrase. Jesus gave that before he left. John the Baptist again distinguishes the baptism from the baptism of, of, of water uh, in Luke 3.16. I've already given it to you. I baptize you with water. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Two distinct things. Jesus told the disciples of Terry in Jerusalem, as I've said in Acts 1.8 and Luke 24.49, uh, to have the power from on high come upon them. The disciples of Jesus experienced the filling not just one time in the book of Acts in chapter 2, but over and over and over again. The disciples at Pentecost were born again, yet they were baptized in Acts 2.4. Every person who receives Christ as Lord and Savior receives the Holy Spirit, as I said, in their new earth. Peter was filled again with the Holy Spirit as he was brought before Caiaphas, and Anna's the high priest in Acts 4.8. He was filled at Pentecost, 4.8 again, baptized. Filled, baptized, promise on the high, the AP experience, I don't care what you call it. I just care you have it. The disciples, after being told by the Sanhedrin not to preach in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, they prayed and they were filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts 4.31. The Samaritans were baptized in water first. Then the Holy Spirit fell upon them when Peter and John came down and laid hands on them in Acts 8, 
15 through 16. So they were born again first, then they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. That was 12 years after Pentecost, by the way. The Apostle Paul received the baptism of the Holy Spirit first in his conversion, then was baptized in water afterwards in Acts 9, 17 through 18. So just the opposite with Paul. The most crucial thing is you must be born again first. The house of Cornelius was baptized with the Holy Spirit first as Peter was preaching. Then he baptized him in water in Acts 10, 44 through 48. Paul was filled as he set his eyes on Elamas the sorcerer in Acts 13, 9. The Ephesian disciples were born again under John's ministry and baptized by John then baptized with the Holy Spirit and rebaptized in water by Paul in the name of Jesus Christ in Acts 19, 1 through 6. That was 24 years after Pentecost. Now, often with the baptism, gifts are associated, but no one gift is the baptism. Assembly of God, Foursquare, and a lot of Pentecostal churches teach that the true evidence of the baptism is speaking in tongues, absolutely unbiblical. It's the least of the gifts. Not everybody has it. How can you teach that? It's absolutely wrong. But what we can say is whenever the baptism is demonstrated and evident, often there are gifts affiliated and associated with it. Most that we have in Acts is prophecy or speaking in tongues, but they're not the only one or the unique evidence, okay? It's completely different. And so the desperate need of, to be filled with the Spirit continuously is the basis for every believer without exception. Jesus said it was for the uh, 11 um, and for the 120 in Luke 24, 49 and Acts 1, 4. Peter said the baptism is for all who repent and Acts 2, 38 through 39. Jesus says, all will have to do, uh, all you have to do is just ask and he will give you, as we said in Luke eleven thirteen. And believers at times um, were laid hands on and they received it. But that doesn't mean you have to have hands laid on all the time. It doesn't matter. Sometimes it do, sometimes it doesn't. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not a one-time experience. It's every time I need to be empowered so that I can be victorious in my life in Christ Jesus. The greatest waste of resources is not by the unbeliever, ladies and gentlemen. It is by the believer. The unsaved are dead. You and I are alive by the Spirit of God. The unused power of the filling of the Holy Spirit as well as in the church today is the greatest waste of resources. When we try to do things on our own and we go nowhere and only go backwards. John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease. So being filled with the Spirit is a command opposed to wine. So in this one little mark of wisdom, walking in wisdom, is being filled with the Holy Spirit. So the fourth way a believer walks in wisdom 
in this world is being filled with the Holy Spirit, characterized by being filled with the Spirit is in contrast to being drunk with wine. Being filled with the Spirit is compared to being affected with wine. And being filled with the Spirit is a command opposed to wine. You talk about wisdom. You talk about getting away from adding to your own hurt. Wow, this is it. It's the only way we can please God and be any good to each other. Father, thank you for your grace, your love, and your goodness. Deal with our hearts, and we thank you for your word. And Lord, for the grace over our life and the power of your Holy Spirit to make us more like you. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Maybe you're over the internet, or maybe you're over listening to us on the radio. If you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead, and that he paid the price of your sins, you can call upon him, that he saved you as you repent of your sins. The Holy Spirit has turned on the light to show you that. Because he's not the author of confusion. Now it's up to you whether you want to be saved or not. If you want to call upon him, this is your prayer to him. And he's going to save you right where you're at right now. You can repeat this prayer. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you made that decision.